And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and this time out I am here. You know, I've made a point of trying to steal as many of the fire and water people as I can. And this time out I'm stealing Ryan Daly for a show. Welcome aboard, Ryan. Yeah. You can't steal something that is offered freely. <laughs> I just want to piss off Shag and Rob. <laughs> I don't think they would miss me. So you're going to have to get Chris Franklin or Siskoid if you really want to piss them off. I, I get the feeling this is one of those things where, you know, they could be plotting to get rid of you. But as soon as they find out that I wanted you on here, then all of a sudden it's like, no, he's ours. <laughs> there, there you go. We'll, we'll go with that one. Yeah. So, uh. Just, uh, you know, brief, well, quickly, uh, what what have you been doing, if anything, as far as comic book collecting, buying, reading lately? Gosh, it, it's been it's been a slow time for for almost two years. My my comic reading and collecting has slowed down. Um, I I had been I had been I a couple of years I kind of lost a lot of interest in DC comics in general, like nothing like nothing new their output and just wasn't reading a lot of like old stuff. I've heard like anecdotally, this has nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about. Everybody tells me that the current Nightwing book is phenomenal. So I guess if there was one DC book to read right now, it's Nightwing. Um, but it just, as a, a subject that didn't really interest me, I was reading a ton of Marvel uh, with the Marvel digital unlimited app, but it's sort of, I, I hit up like a oversaturation point where I was just like, I needed to step back. So I stopped reading those digital comics. And then I felt like amazon.com like shot itself in the head with regards to comiXology and completely messed up that app. So like, it just became harder to find my own digital comics collection that I had been getting. So even though I had been like 90% digital comics for a while, um, I, I just kind of like reverted away from that. And over the last two years, I've been doing more of picking up like um, deluxe hardcover editions of a lot of uh, smaller press and, and uh, like indie titles and publishers. A lot of things by like Image and everything like that, like Saga, mm -hmm. East of West, whatever Ed Brubaker is doing. Like I've been reading all of the, the Reckless books that he's been doing with Sean Phillips, which are phenomenal. Um, this new one I'm reading, Gideon Falls. Um the something is killing the children. I, I got like the a big uh, hardcover of that on my stack that I need to get into because I've heard phenomenal things about that one. Um, but yeah, that's where that's where a lot of my reading has been lately for comics. It's been not the big two, Marvel or DC, but some of like the smaller stuff, more sci-fi and horror-oriented. 
um, but still by those, you know, those premier creators that we know and love. I've been doing um, a lot more horror reading and searching through the back issues for, but I've been doing mostly Marvel for that. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've had a lot more interest lately in, in a, getting copies of Werewolf by Night and Tomb of Dracula. One of my uh, favorite comics of all time. Yeah. You know, all, all of those. Uh, but, you know, I mean, my uh, my bent has always been to go for the, uh, you know, the older books, which is mm. which is what we're doing today. And it, it's it's kind of interesting that, you know, given the, the whole field of things you could have picked, uh, you, <laughs> you did pick a Marvel book for today and I picked a DC. So we aren't doing any kind of indie book and we aren't doing well. Yours is borderline horror. Uh, you, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of yeah, a horror superhero. Yeah, that's it, it originated more of that, but it's definitely. I mean, I think as somebody smarter than me, I don't even know, but like somebody pointed out, and I love the '70s Marvel horror spread from Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Man Thing, um, everything from like the, the the Living Mummy, all of those. But I think somebody rightly pointed out the distinction that a lot of those, because they were created by um, Roy Thomas, who didn't really like horror and like being scared. So like a lot of them kind of fit into the Marvel mode and they kind of feel like they're just one step removed from superhero stories, but dressed up as horror characters. Um, Whereas I think if you look at DC's horror output at the same time, a lot of with a lot of their anthology magazines and Swamp Thing, it is much more like conventional horror um whereas marvel's horror has always been superhero horror really yeah more or less i i I hadn't really made that comparison on a whole uh but now that you say it 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 definitely makes sense but you know i dc didn't unless i'm missing something dc didn't have the stable of continued horror characters the way marvel did uh, you know, like you said, most of this stuff was anthology things, you know, Unexpected, mm. House of uh, Darkness or whatever that was. Uh, House of Secrets, House of, House of, Secrets. of Mystery, yeah. yeah. Actually, House of Darkness, I think, was a short-lived Marvel series. Anyway, uh, but, the, you know, when, when you're doing Bronze Age books and you're having characters like the werewolf and the, you know, Dracula and, and Frankenstein's monster and... All these things, I guess eventually, you know, you're going to turn to a long form story, which is not necessarily as horror related. Uh, Somebody was recently talking to me about the show Dark Shadows, which is, you know, a horror Mm -hmm. thing in theory. But in reality, it was a soap opera. You know, it, it fell into all the tropes of a soap opera. It wasn't really a horror show, even though it was, you know, its main character was a vampire. Uh, So. I guess when you're when you're trying to do a long form story, you are going to fall into certain you know I, story beats. I think I, I think long form horror is really really hard because you need to sustain a certain amount of tension that at some point just can't be sustained. Like like among other things, like one of his real accomplishments, the fact that Stephen King is so successful at writing a horror novels of such like length and breadth that can maintain uh, that suspense and that level of psychological captivity and terror is, is really a phenomenal thing because I think most literary critics would say horror horror began with the short story and it's at its best when it's short because you need a certain amount of brevity 
And that's why those anthology stories were always really good because you had a basic setup and then this, this spooky, like, you know, you know, gotcha thing at the end, that Oh Henry type of thing. But yeah, like horror short stories are so much easier to find and often so much better than full length horror novels. And I think horror movies are often more successful when they're shorter. Now there are exceptions to the rule. I mean, one of, one of my favorite horror projects in any media was the Netflix series, the, ha- the, the haunting of Hill house that just came out a couple of years ago. Uh, that, and that manages to, to sustain this level of fright over 10 episodes, 10 hour long episodes. And it's masterful. I love that show. One of my favorite shows mm. of all time now. Um, but I mean, that, that is rare. Like it, it's, I, I just think like horror. So yeah. So to, again, bringing it back to comics, yeah, you can do that, but like if you're if your protagonist is the werewolf and you want to tell a long form series with it, eventually it's you know he needs a certain amount of pathos in order to be a sympathetic character, and before long he's kind of just like the Incredible Hulk with fur, and in his day life is is you know his uh, he's human mode. He's a little bit like Peter Parker and Bruce Banner. Uh, just kind of dealing with these po- these powers and these abilities. Well, when when your main character is a horror monster, mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's hard to turn them into the hero necessarily. Right. You know, my my wife and I have binged all these shows in the last couple of years. You know, since the pandemic, we've really binged a lot of stuff and a lot of things that we hadn't seen that you know that's really old. We're currently in the process of binging the, the TV show Dallas, so that shows you how far back we've gone on some. <laughs> and the main character on there, and this, you know, it's not a, obviously not a horror show, but the main character is Larry Hagman as J.R. Ewing, and he is mm-hmm. a detestable bad guy. There's no question he's a bad, bad guy. We watch it and we're like, oh my God, he's so, he's so evil, you know, and everything. And yet they managed to make him the hero of the show and make you root for him. And part of the way they do that is they give him an antagonist who you like less than him. <laughs> you know, so there are ways to do it. And if you're you know clever enough, you can definitely do things. I think that's really what they did largely with the uh, series Tomb of Dracula is they would have these, you know, antagonists. He was the protagonist, not the hero. Because there is right. a distinction in the definitions of those names. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they would have him in a situation where you'd still end up rooting for him to come out successful, even though he was not a good guy. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's, it's a game they played with the show Breaking Bad. And it's, it was, you know, I, I felt like as it went on, it was like, how evil can we make him before you stop rooting for him? Mm-hmm. And they kept pushing the envelope further and further and further. You know, to the point where, like, by the end, even the people who loved the charisma of of his character said, you know what, this guy has to die. <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> he's he's just, you know, he, he's done such reprehensible things and, and he cannot justify them. And you can't justify having this guy succeed anymore. But they did right. that over the course of the different seasons where you, certainly in the beginning you're you're behind him 100 percent. And then it's a matter of, well, how far did he go before you jumped off the bandwagon? Right. Or at some point in like season five, you kind of realize like, 
when should like when did he cross the line and I kept going with him like like what yeah. what was that point you can't even see the line anymore yeah I, I think that's kind of what happened with me I think I watched it and eventually I realized wow you know he's such a bad guy you you can't root for him anymore and then you know you look back and you say well I should have made that decision three three story <laughs> arcs ago yeah. he's he's already got a lot of blood on his hands we probably we probably should have seen this coming. But, but you, you know, you, yeah, you give I him a certain was, amount of slack just because you like him so much. I remember going into the last season, though, just knowing I was like, if, if the character doesn't die, and it's not even about like the just rewards or anything, I was, just, but just knowing that the premise of the show when it started was that he had cancer and he was just doing this, and I was like, so he's been on borrowed time this whole show. So if he doesn't die at the end, I'm gonna feel really, really upset. Yeah, it's but you know I mean I think horror has the same challenges in front of it, and and I think horror you have to adapt if you're adapting it for the long form, you have to build tension that's going to go. But you know you you can't really do too much with the jump scares. I mean Walking Dead did it as a comic book for quite some time before people sure. would. Uh, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people who, you know, went different amounts of time before they said, OK, I feel like we're just doing the same thing over and over again. And and there's various points in the in the series where they'd hit that and whether it was the mm-hmm. comic series or the TV series. But, you know, they certainly kept the tension and the horror going for quite some time. So but the book you picked today, I think, is a far more clear example of the horror character as superhero right so you know we're we're not going to really see an example of what we're talking about here (laughs) uh but as the guest on the show i will give you the option which i usually do of we could do your book first or we could do my book first i let you choose Uh, um see now i could say let's sustain the tension that we've been talking about and keep mine for last but no i think i think at this point the audience is like what the heck are you guys talking about all this work for uh so let's dive into it um we are talking about an issue of ghost rider uh specifically ghost rider issue 21 um that was cover dated december 1976 uh the actual on sale uh date was september 14th of that year 1976 um uh, do you want me to go right into it, or sure. want to talk? Yeah. Do you want me to talk about this? Go into the story, or do you want to talk about the cover? Uh, well, I mean, normally what my process is is I give a quick description of the cover, I give the mm-hmm. creative team, give the synopsis of the book, and then the two of us will discuss it. Okay. Um, the cover, which is very crowded, but that kind of makes sense when you realize that of all people, this is Jack Kirby drawing Ghost Rider. Jack Kirby inked by Al Milgram. And uh, the cover features Ghost Rider in an urban environment. Looks like he's on a city street riding his red hell cycle, which is being, which is, he is dragging along the supervillain, the eel and the daredevil villain, the gladiator is leaping maybe from a fire escape or something, trying to grab onto them. Uh, and we see some people on the streets and some people in windows kind of watching this happen as the motorcycle knocks over a trash can and, and you know, races through the street. Again, it's very busy. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's Jack Kirby, so it's just it's exciting and engaging. Um, it says, now at last, the new Ghost Rider. And it says, uh, one of the blisters, more mind-stunning action than ever before in Ghost Rider versus the Gladiator and the Eel. 
so getting into the story, uh, this one is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Gil Kane, inked by Sam Granger. The story is called Death Play. We open at Delazny Studios in Los Angeles, where daredevil villain the Gladiator uses his strength and his wrist-mounted blades to tear apart a soundstage looking for something. We're not quite sure. The MacGuffin, basically. Uh, Ghost Rider, who has been employed by the studio as a stuntman in his civilian identity as Johnny Blaze, rides around on his cycle made of hellfire and harasses the Gladiator until the big bruiser runs away. Ghost Rider powers down to Johnny Blaze and is found by Karen Page, the actress starring in whatever picture set was just rampaged. A local cop named Armstrong gives Johnny a hard time about the damaged set, suspecting his involvement. The next day, Johnny investigates the studio's personnel files, because I guess that's something a hired stuntman is allowed to do, <laughs> and finds out that Delazny hired Leopold Strike as a technical advisor. Leopold! Leopold Leopold Strike being the supervillain The Eel. Johnny goes to Leopold's apartment, surprised to find him living in a poor flop house. Leopold blows him off and then sneaks out the window in his eel costume. Johnny turns into Ghost Rider, but the eel electrocutes him, knocking him unconscious. When he comes around sometime later, the eel has been murdered by the gladiator. Ghost Rider and Gladiator fight, and the rider prevails, but he doesn't know what all this was about, what the two villains were looking for that brought them to Los Angeles, and Ghost Rider gets on his bike and rides off with more questions than answers. So, what do you think of this one? I thought the story was pretty interesting, and I enjoyed reading it. I am a very big fan of both Jack Kirby and Gil Kane, but I feel that they were both mismatched on this particular title. I don't think this was the title that either one of them should be drawing. Uh, so, you know, the cover, uh, I kind of, I, it's, it's definitely a dynamic layout with the, the way the characters are all set up. But again, I'm just kind of not big on Kirby drawing the Ghost Rider. Uh, mm. and, and then again, say, basically the same thing with Gil Kane. I, Gil Kane, it, it surprises me sometimes when I look at how much Gil Kane did as far as covers, because I never saw Gil Kane as a poster artist. I always saw him as a storyteller and, and a, mm. you know, and a, and a action choreographer and a, a really good, uh, montage scene drawer which you see all the time and you see it in this book as well so mm -hmm. there's you know there's he's got so many strengths that i love to read but the way he draws the skull just kind of leaves me a little cold to be honest with you and that's like the most visual thing on the ghost rider so you know I, I have a little bit of a problem with that uh Otherwise, like I said, I, th I thought the story is really intriguing. I know I bought this when it first came out, but I don't remember ever reading it before, actually. Mm. So I don't know what the where the story goes. It's interesting in hindsight to, to, to look at it because the Gladiator, once Frank Miller got a hold of him, which is a little later than this, he mm -hmm. really, really developed the character and changed him a lot because at this point he's just a big muscle-bound thug with 
wrist blades. Right. Right. But eventually he becomes, you know, more psychotic and, and delusional. And, and there's all sorts of things going on in his head. And he actually, you know, gets, uh, Daredevil actually kind of like gets him on the straight and narrow. Uh, mm-hmm. So that there's, you know, some interesting things that go on with the character that don't really fit in with the early characterization that we're getting here. The eel's kind of a non-character, yeah. honestly, and the fact that they killed him off doesn't really even mean anything because you could either you could easily replace him with a new character who says, "Oh, I'm taking over the role." I'm I, I'm sure that that I think that does actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the gladiator was always one of my favorite Daredevil villains, but that's in large part after after what Frank Miller did to him and and the, the way he's been depicted. Like going back to his earlier representations, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't as much there there, um, but I'm sure that in large part affected why I purchased this because I, I just picked this up from a back issue bin a couple of years ago. <laughs> like you, I don't think I read it before I, before the show. Um, but I just remember looking at the cover going, okay, Ghost Rider with Gladiator. That's an interesting little uh, combo. I, I like that character. And then like looking at the cover, I was like, is this Jack Kirby drawing Ghost Rider? I have to see this. So, <laughs> um, yeah. The, and like, this was, this was, and I know a little bit more about the series because just uh, about a month ago, I recorded with Siskoid for his show, um, uh, fire and water team up and we have a sort of seasonal uh, every three months we get together or every four months we do an issue of Marvel 2 and 1 uh, and we just covered an issue uh, with The Thing and Ghost Rider teaming up so I kind of went went back through the history of uh, Ghost Rider at this time and his he was created by Roy Thomas sort of as the editor but it was really Gary Friedrich and Mike Plug. Gary Friedrich was on the book for a while, and then he left, and Tony Isabella took over for a while. And Tony Isabella, it seemed like he had kind of a clear vision for where he wanted the character to go, but he was introducing the supporting character that sounds like it was supposed to be Jesus. And then editorial was like, nope, you can't do that, and rewrote the issue so that it clearly wasn't Jesus. And Tony Isabella was like, all right, I'm done, and walked off the book. Um, so the previous issue, number 20 was written by Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway writes this. And I think the next two or three issues, and then it's like fill in, fill in, fill in for like a while. There was like a rotating, uh, cast of writers and artists on the book for a while, um, before they settled on a kind of coherent direction. Um, so I think maybe that was, maybe that had a little bit to do with why this is more of a, more of a conventional superhero story with no real element of horror or the supernatural other than the fact that that's where he gets his powers. Right. Um, but in a lot of ways, you could have taken the, the ghost rider element out of this. And this could have been a daredevil story. Daredevil going to LA to, to see Karen actually was daredevil in daredevil was in the previous issue. He was, a, he was a guest star in ghost rider 20. Um, so, yeah, like I don't know that this is like you say it's it's a it's more of a superhero story. It's not really a horror story. I don't know that this is the best um showcase of what Ghost Rider is about and what he can do. Um for instance at the end of the day, at the end of the fight, he just hits um he hits uh Gladiator with a with a knocked over street post or whatever. There's nothing about his motorcycle that is key to the the climax or anything like that. Um, but 
I still, I mean, I have an affinity for this character, and it was something I talked about with Cisco, just because it's a motorcycle. He's got a skull, and the skull is on fire. And there's like that that primordial adolescent part of my brain that's still like all of those things are really really cool. So show me more of this. Well, motorcycles ter- terrify me uh, for mm. reasons that you'll probably figure out. Just you know why are most most people who are afraid of motorcycles? Why would they be afraid of them? Uh, but I still think they're cool. Uh, and a flaming skull. Right, yeah, how do you get much cooler mistake. than a flaming skull? Uh, right. I, in particular, you know, just to, to, to bring it around to what we what I was saying earlier, the shot where uh, Ghost Rider clocks Gladiator with the pole, I think that's one of the better drawn things in the entire book. I think that's really mm-hmm. like a dynamic shot. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's points where Gil Kane's, the, where the art that made me a fan of Gil Kane is, is showcased in this book. I just don't really like the way he draws the Ghost Rider. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, I'm, I'm with you there. And like, there's just, there are a few like weird Gil Kane isms that just kind of make you like, what the heck is that about? Like, it's on, I don't know the the actual story page, but it's page eleven. This is when he's walking through the sets with Karen after the thing has been resolved. And like, the last panel is he's like, he's, it's like a close up shot of Johnny Blaze. But the skull is kind of superimposed over just the top part of his face. And I kind of get the effect that Keen was going for, but the execution is just, like, terrible. It just looks like he just drew a skull over one corner of the guy's head, like, covering up his nose and his eyes. Like, yo, what are you doing? Did anybody think that looked good? Yeah, I mean, if anything, you, then, you put the skull yeah. above his head or you give him the, mm-hmm. the, the Spider-Man look that they do where, where it's half his face is Johnny Blaze and the other half is the Ghost Rider or something like that. But Which she does later in like one of the montage pages. And on page 15, this is when he's in the office at, at the Lozny Studios and he's getting the personnel fire, file for this guy. After he walks out with the file in Leopold Strike, there's, um, it's basically a montage of the eels exploits fighting the human torch and nomad and everything like that. And there we have Johnny kind of walking and the images of the other characters fighting over Johnny's face. And it's kind of a similar thing, but in this case, I kind of think it works. Like it's maybe if it was a little bit more translucent, it would be better. But I, I, that one time it doesn't bother me as much. Um, and then when he's knocked unconscious, when you have like the trail of skulls kind of falling falling asleep with the eyes going dark and everything, I like that effect. But I do agree with you that where the art is weakest is frequently close-up shots of Ghost Rider's head. And like that shouldn't be a tough thing to draw. Like a, a flaming skull should should look pretty cool all the time. But it seems like Kane has has trouble keeping it on model sometimes. And I don't remember if it's a later revelation, but eventually we see that the Ghost Rider is literally a skeleton underneath the biking costume. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. something that it developed later or if it developed, you know, earlier than this and Kane is missing the model because he's giving him the skull, but clearly the skull is connected to a full-sized neck which which is going to go down to a full-sized body, I assume, as opposed to a skeleton. Right, and I think, I mean, like, the way it was, and even Mike Plug when he created the character, did this, like, 
the skull has to be a little bit bigger than a natural skull because the skull has to be big enough to look like a full-size head in proportion to the rest of the body. And a lot of people think it's a helmet. But, like, yeah, it, like it, its skull has to be the, – yeah, the, the dimensions and the proportions of the skull have to be a little bit bigger in order to, for it to look like a full face, like a full head. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't – yeah, like if you go, I'm looking specifically now at the bottom right panel on page 23. You know, you, you see his neck, and it isn't bones. It's a neck, and right. it's just white like the yeah. skull. Yeah, that's bad. So does he just have a, a very, very pale body, you know, and, and, and a skull head? Or is he truly a skeleton, which is, again, what I think you see in later revelations i don't know again it, it that that character development may not have happened yet i don't remember I don't the earlier has. issues i'm not sure if that even happens i don't think that happens until the danny catch era of ghost rider in the 80s and 90s oh i see, i seem to remember it in the later issues of this series but i could be wrong huh? hmm, okay you know when when he's revealed to be uh what is it zarathos the, oh, okay. I, I think then huh. they show him in, in his skeleton mode, and I don't know if they ever did it earlier than that. So, you know, Kane might have been under the impression that, you know, or, or Kane may have been rightfully under the impression that that's the way the character is supposed to be. But, again, it just doesn't feel right. I, I would have kept the, the motorcycle jacket buttoned up enough so that you wouldn't actually see, you know, where the skull is connected. Right. Right. Or create a sense of flames coming out from underneath the jaw, underneath the, the jacket and everything. Yeah. So it's not just on top of his head, but all around. What do you think of the story? Um, the story I thought was OK. It was I mean, I, I don't think Jerry Conway is capable of writing a bad story. Um, like I said, I thought the story was kind of interesting. It's nice. It, it we're we're coming in, we're coming into Midius race. There's a mystery going on with these characters, and we're kind of in as much of the dark as Johnny Blaze is. Um, there was definitely some intriguing bits. I I like the stuff with the gladiator. I like the little bit of tension between Johnny and this random police officer. Can you believe an LAPD cop not or LAPD officer just being mean to somebody in counterculture? I can't. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, there's there's some good stuff here, but again, is this does it feel like a Ghost Rider comic? Maybe from the time, maybe of this era, this is what Ghost Rider was. I'm also remembering like, you know, he 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 says a couple times here, like you know, he's he's not really a superhero. He feels a little bit out of his league, but he was in the Champions at the same time this book was coming out. Mm. Um, um, but yeah, I thought I thought the story was decent. Not great. Um, yeah, my 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 grades for the story and art will be similar. I think the story was enjoyable, but I do think it's a little bit uh, generic. As you said, like it could easily have just been Daredevil and not Ghost Rider. So for that reason, I think the story, you know, it doesn't. And I, and I think you got to give Conway a little bit of a... a a break on that since he was kind of just coming in, you know, a little cold. Uh, and, you, you know, you got to give him a chance to get his feet wet and get a feel for the character. And, you know, I don't even know how much right he had or, you know, ability he had with editorial to try and develop the character. So mm -hmm. 
for that reason, I'm, I'm willing to give a pass as far as that goes. And I found it to be enjoyable general superhero fare. So, uh, you want to rate it? Sure. You want to go first or you want me to? You're the guest. I will give you the choice. All right. For the story, I'm going to go B minus. Um, and there's nothing, nothing really wrong with it, but I felt like if this is your main character, I want to see like kind of like a celebration of what makes him tick. And I felt like you could have inserted a dozen different Marvel characters at this time into the exact same story and the plot and the action doesn't really change that much. Um, the art, I'm also going to say a B minus, um, it's, it's Gil Kane. And for me, I think similar to kind of what you were saying, Gil Kane is capable of some amazing stuff and also some head scratching stuff. And sometimes it's in the exact same issue. Um, and, and this is one of those where I was like, all right, that, that's a cool little layout or that's a nice little piece, but also like, what, uh, maybe why did the editor let that one go? So I just, I, I say story and art are both a B minus for the cover. I think I like the cover a little bit more than you. I'm going an A minus mostly because it's Jack Kirby. It's Jack Kirby drawing Ghost Rider, which I, I didn't realize I would ever actually see until I, I flipped through and I, I picked this one up. Um, you know, like if if home if home field advantage is worth three points, then <laughs> Jack Kirby drawing your cover it there's like it, it gives you an extra little boost. You know, as as messy as the cover could have been as in the B range, Kirby's name alone maybe gives it a little bit of extra panache, a little extra cachet, I should say. So, A minus cover, B minus story, B minus art overall. Uh, B. Right, that's fair. Uh, I'm not too far off of you uh, on much of it. Uh, I'm, I'm also basically B minus on the story and the art. Um, you know, I mean, it's story wise, again, it's enjoyable superhero fare. It just doesn't have anything to separate it from other things. And if a C is average, it's a little above average. The artwork, you know, you, you see the moments where, where Gil Kane is the artist that I've enjoyed reading some, or what, re, well, I guess reading his, or looking at his artwork, whatever you want to call it, uh, over the years. You know, there's moments here where, where it really comes out, and, and I'm loving it. And then there's some moments where, again, not so much to blame him that he did bad, but more that I think he was ill-suited to Ghost Rider himself. Uh, so B minus on that as well. The cover, you know, you, you, I was ready to give the cover a B minus, but you got me, you got me saying, Ooh, Jack Kirby joined Ghost Rider. Um, I'm going to say a B on the cover. It's, it's not, it's not a bad cover. It's just, you know, I feel like it could have been cleaned up a little bit and made just a little bit better. So overall, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to give the book a B overall because it was a, a fun read. So now I brought to the table World's Finest number issue number 167. And the reason I picked this one is because on New Year's Eve, I went out comic book shopping. And while I was comic book shopping, I found this book in a 50 cent pile of books. Uh, it's a, you know, a wow. little, little bit, you know, I guess the, the words would be well-loved. So it's, you know, <laughs> but it automatically took its spot as the earliest issue of World's Finest in my collection. So 
-hmm. You know, it's got that going for it. And it's got a cover showing Superman and Batman. Uh, Superman's flying into the picture. Batman is swinging into the picture. And both of them have their faces blanked out. And there's a bunch of question marks around them. And it says, is Superman Clark Kent? Is Batman Bruce Wayne? Wrong. Read the new Superman Batman team. And that cover is by uh, Kurt Swan. Uh, and it is also credits given to George Klein and Gaspar Saladino. I, I'm guessing Klein uh, inked it and Saladino colored it, but I couldn't even tell you for sure. The story is the new Superman and Batman team. And it's written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by George Klein, and edited by Mort Weisinger. And I was going to just read you the wiki page on it, but instead I'm going to page through it and just describe it to you as I page through it. Uh, so they start right off telling us that this is an imaginary story because all the other ones are real. And uh, the, the splash page shows... Lex Luthor coming up with a serum that's going to make him into a Superman and Clark Kent standing over the grave of Jonathan and Martha Kent saying that his parents were murdered and he's going to avenge them in his new identity as Batman. So the story opens up with the uh, spaceship rocketing off from Krypton, but as it's as he's rocketing a piece of gold kryptonite goes by the ship and uh, robs Kal-El of his superpowers. He lands in Smallville, where he's adopted by the Kents, and because he doesn't have his superpowers, he doesn't have to hide his basic athletic abilities, and he's a star basketball player for the Smallville team, and he becomes great friends with Lex Luthor. Uh, we don't have the moment where he causes Lex to lose his hair and turns him against him, Lex works on a secret uh, serum that he developed from, uh, I, I believe he developed it from a piece of kryptonite that he found. I'm trying to remember if they specifically say that. But anyway, he drinks it and it gives him superpowers. And for reasons that the plot doesn't tell us, he has a, an outfit exactly the same as Superman would, would have had. And he saves a crashing uh, plane. And then basically becomes the superpower the superboy of Smallville at that point. In this story, uh Miss Monpa Kent own a general store and a man comes in and attempts to rob them but then eventually kills both of them. Uh Pa Kent doesn't die right away and he tries to tell Clark that he's uh from another planet but he passes away just before he does. As, as this is going on, he looks out the window and sees a bat, and uh, he says it's like an omen, that the that and that's the crime-fighting guys I'll adopt. Criminals are superstitious. A bat will terrify them. I'll be Batman. So moving on, uh, Clark actually moves in with his un rich uncle, who eventually passes away and leaves him his uh, fortune, and he develops the Batcave with his butler alfred and he becomes batman and he's fighting crime as the masked manhunter while this is going on he meets up with lois lane and starts to date her uh brainiac comes to earth and eventually kidnaps lois to be part of his intergalactic zoo 
the two uh, team up, Batman and Superman, or Lex Luthor Superman and Clark Kent Batman, and they rescue her from uh, Brainiac. Uh, eventually, they be they become a regular team, and Clark Kent dates Lois and eventually marries her. Uh, after marrying her, he reveals to her that he's Batman because he feels the need to do so. And then Lex Luthor comes into the room and reveals himself to be Superman. At this point, and this is where the costume threw me off a little bit, Super, Supergirl lands on Earth and she's got the traditional Supergirl outfit. So where Lex got his Superman outfit, I don't know. She comes over and becomes part of the, the Kent family and hides her identity as a... As, uh, Linda Kent, and then we have, I'm sorry, we have a, a ship that's coming, or oh, the Toy Man is fighting with them, but he lets some sort of gun loose that that's causes uh, Clark to be poisoned by gold kryptonite, Lex takes him and... and transfers somehow transfers his superpowers to him to save him and then he eventually leaves earth in a in a spaceship that he invented uh and they wonder if he'll ever return and it says thus our imaginary tale ends with clark kent taking his rightful place as the superman of earth so we never do find out what happened with bruce wayne if anything or why this story would have stopped him from having his background but this is the kind of story that if I read this, this came out in 1967, so I would have been four years old when this came out. Uh, so this would have been too early for that. But if I read this when I was about eight or nine, I would have loved every minute, every every page of it. Uh, as, as a much older person than that, uh, I find it amusing. I, I think, you know, it's... It's funny to see some of the tropes that they play with and how they do it, uh, but it's more just kind of a an addition to my collection than it is a uh, <laughs> a story that I'm gonna you know remember three weeks from now. <laughs> do you ever? Uh, I go ahead. I I feel like I've read this story before. But I don't know where or when. I don't have a copy of this issue. I don't know if it was ever collected in some anthology. But this story felt familiar to me in some ways. Or maybe like aspects of this story have been repurposed for other imaginary what-if type of scenario stories or something like that. It it felt familiar, but, like, but I can't place where I might have read it in what context before. Um Certainly, yeah. I mean, I like, yeah. If I had, I would have had to have been the right age um, to to find this and and to really have that kind of appreciation. Like more, I might be more sympathetic to it today, um, just as, as my my sentimentalities and looking at this without nostalgia being, but being able to recognize the charm of what they were going for, and also trying to work out in my head there's such this sort of revisionist look that's been popular lately with like with takes for Lex Luthor trying to trying to justify him as if like 
as if he wouldn't have been evil if not for Superman. That you know, this idea that the the superhero is in some way responsible for the creation of his own villains, or something like that. And and this, you you could argue like if if like this maybe shows if Superman didn't exist, you know, like like. Lex Luthor would have become Superman. He would have made it himself, and like he didn't have that negative influence. But you also, is there a counter that it was the the effect of Clark Kent being in his life that presence shaped him into being a good person? I don't, I don't know. Um, I just, I yeah. So I, I, I don't like this, the the ideas that necessarily that you know just. If you could change one thing to make a villain like Lex Luthor good or bad, like it was like the, the one bad day type of thing or one mm-hmm. bad Superman. Yeah, the one bad day thing is an interesting concept, but I don't know how much that has really, you know, from a realistic point of view, because I think, you know, even in the one bad day scenario, it may be one bad day that starts the ball rolling. But it has to keep rolling in order for things to become what they become. Right. You know, and, and you know, if you have somebody who's basically good and he has one bad day, odds are that he will overcome that bad day and go on to, you know, to be the person that he truly is or she truly is. Right. You know, we, we talked earlier about Breaking Bad and, and Walter White. And it wasn't, okay, Walter, you, you know, you have lung cancer all right, I'm going to start killing people. It was a series of events and things that just kind of snowballed and built up and built up that made him into the villain that he became. And he may have always had that within him, but he needed something to trigger it, but it wasn't one bad day. I think that's more realistic. I'm sure there are one bad day scenarios that that are realistic, but I think in general... The buildup of events, you know, the, the 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 total, you know, compilation of all the things that occurred is really what's going to create some sort of a, a a persona for the person. Mm. One thing this also made me reevaluate is um, I used to give John Byrne crap because, like, his models for Superman and Batman. And their jaw lines looked the same. But this just goes to show you if Clark Kent dressed up as Batman in any era, he would look the same. Hmm. I didn't think of it from that perspective. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the Batman costume, I mean, I guess you do see a fair amount of the face. So if you have somebody with a different jawline, that should stand out. What would you think of the ginger-haired Superboy and Superman? I thought it was interesting that they didn't have the uh, the moment when he loses his hair. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I had some issue with the fact that he he just managed to create the same Superman costume. There should have been something on the ship or something. Yeah, that, that yeah, led him that to doesn't that. make sense. Right. But you know, he, he just all of a sudden became Superman. And had, you know, when he's drinking the formula, he's already got the Superman costume hanging behind him. So there's a lot about this story where I feel like you know, it's kind of oversimplified, but I think that was the want of DC in the 1960s. Right. So, 
you know, they were writing for a younger audience. And whenever I review one of these books, I always have to keep that in mind. Now, there's a certain part of me that even, again, as a uh, an older gentleman, uh, I can appreciate reading these stories and get a kick out of them. But I always have to realize these stories are not written for somebody my age. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're the intended audience for this book is probably ranging from 6 to 15. You know, and, then, and that might even be giving it a wide berth. And that informs how I read them and how I will end up grading them, too. You know, I, I have more leeway depending on when the story was published and kind of the standards for that era and what was capable and what was the sort of style of the, t- the style of the time. Yeah, there's certain things that I can, you know, I definitely do that with these books. But like when, when I deal with the real Silver age stories, you know, or even if you go back to the Golden Age and you get these, you know, kind of silly things that they're willing to just kind of concede for the purposes of storytelling. A lot of times I have to say to myself, okay, when you're reviewing it, you know, review it from the perspective of who it's being written for. But when I'm reading them, I have less tolerance when it's in large, large bundles. Like I could sit and read this issue and get a kick out of it and then move on to something that more suits my sensibilities. But if I tried to binge World's Finest of this era, it wouldn't take long for me to lose patience. I still got you there? Yep, sorry. I just, I was looking, I think I, this was in one of the Blue Ribbon Digests, one of the best of DC. I think that's where I read the story before. Now, looking at the uh, Wikipedia page, uh, what I, one of the things I actually like about this is, where does it say it? It says, uh, the new Superman and Batman team was originally published as an imaginary story, a story outside of regular continuity. In Crisis on Infinite Earths, the compendium, it was retconned as having happened on another Earth, Earth number 167. I kind of like that better than calling it an imaginary story. And this is just a silly pet peeve of mine, but they're all imaginary stories. So sure. so I'd rather they don't call it an imaginary story. I'd rather it's just on in a different plane of existence. It's, it's a what if or, or an else world. Yeah. And I don't know enough specifically about the compendium, but I, I'm assuming it's not unique to the story. Maybe every one of these imaginary stories was reimagined to be part of just happening on a different earth, a different dimension. Yeah, that's that's my guess. I, I've never read the compendium. I probably would get a kick out of reading it, actually. Uh, but but I, I just prefer that. And, and it's really just, you know, a description it's nothing more than that. It doesn't change the story in any way or, sh- or shape, but it's just a conceit that I prefer mm-hmm. when I read these. What do you What do you think of the artwork in this? So I'm not a big fan of Kurt Swan, um, but I I accept that it was just his was the the style of that era, um, and nothing about it offends me or takes me out of the story. Um, it's, I, it, it, I get the same kind of vibe I get from reading a kid's little golden book or, or more of a, a junior level illustrated story, which again, as we were kind of saying, 
this story feels it was written for a younger audience than me and for us. And it was written at a different time. Perhaps they were in like aiming this at what they perceived to be less sophisticated readership, uh, a more transient readership. Um, so uh, the, the detail, the style, there's nothing bad about the art. It doesn't excite me, but I, I think it's it's fine and it's it's serviceable. It gets it does exactly what it needs to be, but to me it's it's effective the same way, you know, a, a, a young reader's illustrated book would be. See, Kurt, like I, I don't I don't hold Kurt Swan's art to the same caliber as a lot more dynamic artists of different of more modern vintage. See, Kurt Swan is the Superman artist I grew up with. Uh, as and I'm sure mm-hmm. very very many people can say that because he had a, an incredibly long run with well, for so long. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've I've made the distinction a few times on the show about who's the artist I most line up with the character because you know the first artist I think of the one who did most of the work or the, or you know the first one I think of and who is the best artist ever to draw them. So Kurt Swan is the first person I think of as a Superman artist because he did so much of, of the Superman books or so many of the Superman books when I was growing up. But the best Superman artist, unless I'm forgetting somebody, which I don't think I am, would for me would either be Neil Adams or John Byrne. I'm not sure which one I fall on for that. Uh, this does, you know, this artwork doesn't compare in quality to theirs. But he still is the first artist I think of when I think of Superman because of the volume of his work. And and because yeah. he was the guy doing it when I was growing up and getting used to the character. Yeah, that makes sense. I get that. So by way of rating this one, uh, the cover catches my eye and makes me wonder what the heck are they trying to do? But it also feels like it's like a like a little kids magazine where you know they're, they're I, I can imagine many many kids took this and then drew in the faces. <laughs> uh, so it doesn't really feel special to me. Uh, I'm gonna say a C. It's not good. It's not bad. It's average. Uh, did you have a point? No, no, I'll, I'll no, go ahead. <laughs> okay. The interior art, I think, is fairly good, Kurt Swan. It's not incredibly dynamic, but I think the storytelling is pretty good. It's kind of of its age. Uh, I'm going to say a B on the interior art. The story is pure silliness, and if I was rating it from my own perspective, I would definitely be giving it a lower rate rating, but... As I said, if I was eight years old and you handed me this book, I would be loving it. So I'm going to give it a B based upon what I think my eight-year-old self would have said. And overall, I'll give the book a B. So, yeah, I'm I'm right on you the same wavelength in terms of, like, grading, like, the interior story and art. Um, I have to, you know, scaffold. I have to adjust my, my grading scale for, you know, what I think – you know, the the era when this came out, who the target audience, who would be the most appreciative of this art. And I'm kind of the same way. I think it's, it's a B for the story and a B for the art. Um, this uh, this cover, the silliness tickles me. I, I can't I can't deny it. Like I 
something about the gimmick of this. Like, I, I know, like, like I, so, sometimes these these tropes that we see in the Silver Age, especially when it comes to covers, I can be a mark for those. Um, like the, the, the old adage of just like put a monkey on the cover and somebody's gonna like re, re, like buy it or something. I would be that guy. I would be like, I was like, oh, a monkey. What's gonna happen to Superman in this one? Um, yeah, the, the whole thing with the Superman and Batman bodies, but their faces are blanked out. It's like they have new identities. Who is the new team with all these question marks? I I adore this one. So I would give. I'm gonna give this cover an A minus. Um, yeah, and I actually like realize now. Like, and I'll give the store the I'll give a B for the whole presence. So, the the two books that we've rated, I gave the exact same grades to, but for very different reasons. Yeah, I, I was thinking that when I was giving my grades that I am also very similar in my grades for both books, but also for different reasons. And and some yeah. of it is you know a conceit to the time and the era and all of that stuff. But yeah, you know, still both enjoyable to read, and I'm glad. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you came on and you got me to pick up the Ghost Rider book, and I'm glad you came on in general. But yeah, before course. we sign off, why don't you tell anybody listening where they can find you? Well, you can find me over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, my my main show that you can always find me on consistently is Cheers Cast, uh, which is a podcast covering episodically the uh, NBC sitcom Cheers, my favorite show of all time. Uh, depending on when this episode comes out in February of 2023, I will be starting the sixth season of cheers, uh, which is when we have had our transition from the Shelley long era to now Kirstie Alley playing the character of Rebecca. Howe comes into the show as the female lead. Uh, those episodes are going to be kicking off and really excited for that. Paul of course has been a, a consistent recurring guest every year on that show and will be on again. Um, so yeah, you can always find me on cheers cast. And I do have several other shows on that network. Some of them are on hiatus. Some of them are long since canceled. Um, I've got a music show that I do with my brother or with other guests called Fire and Water Records. And in February, we should have a very daily Valentine's episode coming out. Um, so look for that if you want to hear some of our favorite love songs. Cool. Yeah, I always enjoy when you guys do the music stuff because most of what you say I agree with. So that always that always helps. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks and we'll see you next week.